The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Brad Lancaster. He is a rainwater harvester, a permaculturalist, a regenerative design consultant based in Tucson, Arizona, in the Sonoran Desert, where he harvests 100,000 gallons of rainwater a year on one-eighth of an acre urban lot plus adjoining public right-of-way. And I should note that this is an area that gets just 11 inches of rain each year. Mr. Lancaster is also an award-winning author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. He is also the co-founder of Neighborhood Foresters, and he runs a permaculture education design and consultation business that is focused on integrated regenerative approaches to landscape design, planning, and living. The harvested water that Mr. Lancaster is able to capture is turned into living air conditioners of food-bearing shade trees, abundant gardens, and a thriving landscape that incorporates wildlife habitat, beauty, medicinal plants, and more. The goal of his book series and overall work is to empower his clients and community to make positive change in their own lives and neighborhoods by harvesting and enhancing free, on-site resources such as water, sun, wind, shade, community, and more. Mr. Lancaster holds a degree in anthropology, Spanish, and humanities, and he also attended the Permaculture Drylands Institute as well as the Earthworks Institute. Welcome, Brad. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. I was recently at a conference of healthcare journalists, and we were talking about global warming, climate change, and the impact of public health. And of course, we look to the Southwest and we think, wow, well, those areas, can we even be living there in the decades to come? And I found a statistic on Tucson.com that global warming and the urban heat island effect have boosted southwestern city temperatures faster than elsewhere, and that by 2050, Tucson is projected to feel like 105 degrees Fahrenheit or higher for more than a third of the year. And yet you, through your work with permaculture and rainwater harvesting and planting of trees and other vegetation, you've been able to lower the temperatures by 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So I had to have you on to talk about this. How did you become interested in permaculture and rainwater harvesting? Uh, Well, I think it's really just living and playing in place. (laughs) So, you know, as a kid, the desert in our backyard was my playground, and um, it just uh, instilled a real appreciation and, and love of the natural life and beauty that's all around if we uh, at least don't blade it or take it out. But as I grew up, I saw, like, the health of much of these natural playgrounds degrade, and I didn't want to be part of that problem. I wanted to be part of the solution. And so 
I came upon water harvesting in that seeking. And the, the great thing is the same playground, the desert playground I played in as a kid, is what informed me as an adult of the way to solve these problems. In that you see the, the natural oases out in the desert where water doesn't drain away, but it slows down and it infiltrates the soil. And not only does it slow down the flow of water in these areas, but it slows down the flow of organic matter being carried by that water. So you get these reservoirs, if you will, or these resource nets of greater fertility, organic matter, life, and the, the vegetation that grows from that. Those are the spots I would seek out as a kid to play in because you had much more shade, it was cooler, there was food, there was hummingbirds. So, yeah, that's what lured me to my my current profession and and livelihood. (laughs) Who taught you about rainwater harvesting? Yeah, so as far as the people, there's been a, a great number of people. And I'd say my greatest teachers taught themselves, similar to as I was explaining as a kid what I did. So one was Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko, who was a subsistence farmer in the driest region of Zimbabwe. And I had the opportunity in 1995 to travel to Zimbabwe. I was seeking out different sustainable agriculture systems and whatnot, and I heard about him. So I tracked him down and got to spend a day with him. And he he and his family had taught themselves how to plant the rain. Those are his words, plant the rain, because he was politically active, against the all-white, minority-led Rhodesian government back in the day and blacklisted and told he'd never work again. So he had to figure out a way to support his family of eight with no job. So they had a small family land holding, and it was very eroded. So they had to figure out how to turn that around. And he did, as I explained, of basically playing in the rain, watching, seeing how does the water flow, where does it linger and life grow, and where does it not linger but too quickly run off and cause erosion. So he wanted to stop and fix that which wasn't working, and he wanted to build that um, which was. So he and his family, they taught themselves, and now today their site is a mecca of sorts. It's It's a shining example of how to turn things around. They rose the water table. The diversity of life was dramatically increased, and the fertility on his land dramatically increased. So I had the chance to witness this and see the transformation that he and his family had made, and it gave me great hope for my community of Tucson, where we were dropping our water table. We killed our river by over-pumping and over-extracting our groundwater, and some worse things. Uh, And I told him I wanted to leave. I didn't want to be part of the problem. And he said, look, if you run from your problems, they're just going to follow you, and you're going to plant problems everywhere you go. So don't leave your home. Go back and set your roots deeper than you thought possible and try and turn those problems into solutions. And that just really resonated with me at the time. And I knew it was possible because I had witnessed what he and his family had done and uh, how they had figured it out with just simple hand tools to turn stuff around. I thought, wow, well, I could do it. I just need to figure out how to do that into the conditions unique to my home. And I went home and set about doing just that. And when I got home, I'm practicing and seeking out others. And then I find Clifford Pablo, a Tona Odom mentor of mine, who'd been doing runoff farming for years. And 
I, it was crazy. I realized, wow, I didn't have to go to Africa to figure out how to do this. Clifford and so many other folks are here and have been here all along. I just didn't know where to look. And then there's been other teachers as well, but Clifford and, and Mr. Peary were my two primary teachers in the early years. Well, this would be a really good time to direct our listeners to your excellent website, which is simply harvestingrainwater.com. And I will provide a link to that in our show notes. But I think that hearing you describe what you've been able to create is so much more powerful by also seeing the images of how you've taken an otherwise desertified landscape and turned it into a living, thriving, regenerative space. And what really struck me was that when I think about Tucson and the 11 inches of rain a year, and then I think about, wait a second, how are you capturing 100,000 gallons of water? Where does it all come from? And you have both passive and active water collection. So I think we should talk about that. Where does this water come from? Yeah, so it's all from the sky. It's all coming down as rainfall. And then it hits the surface. And in the past, when we, when my brother and I bought this property on the northern edge of downtown Tucson, everything flowed to the street and it was lost, which is how, unfortunately, the majority of sites around Tucson are and in built environments around the world. So we started to turn that around. So we turned mound shapes into basin shapes. We kept the mounds on the pathways. We want those high and dry, so our feet are high and dry. But adjoining all pathways and gathering spots, we made it sunken. And that's where we directed the runoff water, turned runoff to soak in. And that's where we planted the plants. And these sunken areas, they capture everything that gravity delivers. It's not just rain. It's also leaf drop and organic matter. So they become much more fertile. So the bulk of that rain, we capture in the soil. And then once it's in the soil, the way we make that accessible is we plant living pumps. So the pumps are in the form of native food-bearing trees and shrubs and some exotic fruit trees and a vegetable garden and so on. So the water is stored in the soil and the abundant soil life, and then those plants uptake the water into their tissue, and we can enjoy it in the form of lettuce, herbs, fruit, mesquite pods, and so on, and also the shade, the shelter, the beauty, and whatnot that they offer as well. So of that 100,000 gallons of water a year that we harvest, the bulk is in the soil and the life, but we do have 5,000-gallon tank capacity. That's not one tank. That's, that's a cumulative of a few tanks. And that's a great strategy, too, to readily have that water readily at hand from the tanks, but to lower the cost, the first step I recommend for everyone is plant the rain before you tank the rain. And by planting more of the rain, and not just rain, but also household gray water, you know, the water you've already used and already paid for, lightly used at that, that runs down the drain of your sink, showers, bathtub, and washing machine, redirect that to the same rain garden, these basin-planted areas in the landscape. And by doing that, you so reduce your need to import water from elsewhere for your irrigation because you're using what's already freely at hand. And by doing that, you're reducing the need for supplemental irrigation and you can reduce the size of the tank there. You can actually use that tank water in the house before you send it to the landscape. So I drink the rainwater, I bathe with it, I wash with it, and then the gray water I send to the landscape. So 
mimicking the natural, the, the hydrologic cycle of this planet. You know, the planet never runs out of fresh water. Sections do temporarily, but the planet doesn't because the planet's hydrologic cycle and all the myriad life forms that make it up, they reuse the water over and over again in a way that doesn't degrade but maintains or enhances the quality. So that's our inspiration for the strategies that we're trying to implement. So there are some communities that do not allow the capture of rainwater, which was a big surprise to me. I was actually on a conference field trip in Denver, and we had visited a school garden. And, you know, many of us have rain barrels, for example, where we try to capture a little bit of rain that falls from our rooftops. And we were told that they could not capture water like that because agriculturally, that water was owed to the Colorado River. So tell me what you think about all of this. I'm assuming that in Tucson, you are free to capture rainwater that falls on the roof. You're certainly doing that. But are you aware of other communities that don't allow that capture? Yeah, absolutely. And I've taught and consulted in in Colorado. But one thing I want to clarify is Everywhere in the U.S., including Colorado, it's totally fine, totally legal to harvest rainwater in the soil and vegetation, you know, via those rain gardens I was talking about. That's never been a problem. The only issue has been, and it's really just in Colorado, is harvesting water in tanks, you know, roof runoff in tanks, for the reasons you expressed. But that's thankfully changing, and that change started with an engineer, Bjorn Courtney, who was working for a housing developer that wanted to build some homes south of Denver that were not hooked up to the city grid. They would just get their water from rainwater and uh, because there was not municipal water available to them in that area. So they wanted to see if they could change the law. So Courtney, uh, Bjorn Courtney, she went out and monitored how much rain actually runs off this undeveloped site in rainstorms. And she found typically it's no more than 3% runs off the site. But she got lots of data, did the computer modeling, and found even if there was a biblical event with, you know, a huge flow of water uh, coming from the sky, no more than 15% of the water would flow off the site. The remaining 85% would infiltrate the site. So she said, look, here's the data. She took it to the state legislature and said, if this is the case, what is your law based on? And she was able to change the law statewide. So if you're not hooked up to the city water grid, you know, you don't have city water coming to you or you don't have water leaving your site to the city sewer, you can harvest water in tanks from your roof. The exception is the state legislature didn't go all the way, though. They just went partway. If you are in a city and you're hooked up to a water grid, they now allow you to harvest 100 gallons worth of water off your roof. You can have a 100-gallon rain barrel, but no more. So, whereas before you couldn't even do that. So they're at least moving in the right direction. And I think very often problems like this arise from a misunderstanding of how the hydrologic cycle actually works Mm. and how we are actually dehydrating our communities by draining the rain at an abnormal rate. So when we build, we create homes, roads, so on, we are sealing the surface with the pavement of the structure and the pavement. And we are denying the waters, the rainfall's ability to infiltrate into the soil. So we need to turn things around so that we are retaining rather than draining that rain. 
and thereby allowing water to more rapidly infiltrate the soil and then more slowly release from the soil. And if you think about it, you know, rivers and creeks, they flow year-round, but it's not raining every day, but yet it still flows. And that's because the creeks are flowing from water being slowly released from subsurface within the soils of that watershed. And so that's what we have to just strive for is, is more of that, getting more back to that healthy system. Yeah. Let me take one break because we are more than halfway through and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Brad Lancaster. He is a rainwater harvester, award-winning author, permaculturalist, and regenerative design consultant. And he is based in Tucson, Arizona, but his regenerative approaches are applicable globally. Well, I want to go back to that 20-degree change in temperature, because I was recently at a conference where some physicians were talking about the impact of climate change and higher temperatures on adverse birth events, adverse childhood diseases, so an, an increased risk for childhood asthma attacks. People can't get out and exercise like they want to when it's so hot, and of course, that affects blood pressure and stress and diabetes, et cetera. So as we face more climate incidents and as the temperature climbs in our communities, it affects public health. And when I see the work that you're doing, producing native foods that are rich in nutrients, rich in fiber, and then also lowering the temperature and creating these cool landscapes that are beautiful, places where people want to gather, you're creating community. I want public health people to know about your work because I think it has tremendous impacts. Yeah, well, it's made a huge difference for our quality of life and our neighbors. And so, you know, when we moved to this neighborhood, most of the streets were these barren-like streetscapes. It was like a solar oven-like experience, lacking in trees. So we organized an annual rain and tree planting program, which has continued to this day. We started in 1996. And this program, by just working with neighbors, we planted over uh, 1,600 native food-bearing shade trees and thousands of understory food and medicinal-producing native plants. And we harvest over a million gallons of stormwater per year. So we are not extracting water from the groundwater table or the Colorado River to water all this. Instead, we're just using what's freely at hand. So we're directing, redirecting street runoff, uh, not to street gutter and storm drain, but instead we're redirecting it to the street side plantings in basins lower than the street. And then we cut the street curb to direct the street runoff from street into the basin. And as a result, we now have this continuous shade canopy along the public walkways and streets of our neighborhood. And we've even brought it into the streets. We've been so successful. So we've been doing water harvesting traffic calming strategies like roundabouts or traffic circles and chicanes or pullouts that narrow the street. And we're harvesting water in these and growing native food plants. Uh, when I say native food plants, I'm not talking about annuals, but perennials, trees, shrubs, cacti, and so forth. And so as a result, now it's very pleasant to walk and bike in our neighborhood, whereas before it was horrible. And not only is it more pleasant with the much cooler temperatures in the shade of the canopy of these trees and so forth, but in our dry climate, it also helps humidify the air, too. 
And a little ecological thing is, you know, in wetter climates, oftentimes where you've got abundant vegetation, dense forest, when a tree gets cut down, new life erupts where that light now enters the forest. But in a dryland climate, it's the reverse. More life erupts under the shade of a tree or a shrub because these shaded areas are a more beneficial microclimate in our hot, dry climate. And what's more, they're nutrient islands and they're moisture islands because there's more nutrients from the bird poop that, you know, the birds that come to the plants and the leaf drop and so forth and more organic matter. And it's a moist island because it's sheltered, more shaded, and there's less evaporative loss. And these desert shade trees pull deep soil moisture up to the surface at night and create a more verdant microclimate for more growth. And we now have over 12 dozen native bird species that have returned. They were no longer in our neighborhood. Now they've returned since we've regrown their habitat. We have wild javelina traveling through the neighborhood, huge amounts of pollinators coming through, and many more bird species are now migratory visitors in the seasons, like the Wilson's warbler and other songbirds, which explodes our sense of place when we realize wow, we're not just enhancing our neighborhood, we're enhancing the migratory journey for these birds flying from Central America to Alaska and back. We're part of that larger system. We can contribute to it. And boy, are they benefiting our life when they come through twice a year. Right. And it certainly has to reduce stress levels. And I wonder if what you're creating there in your own community doesn't also reduce crime and increase the value of real estate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, first, when you're mentioning just, I guess, the mental state, you know, when I started doing this work, doing a lot of teaching and and work outside beyond my neighborhood, and just sometimes the state of the world would get me down, but my spirits would always be lifted when I came home because I could see things growing and getting better. And I mean, I see it in my neighbor's faces. I know so many more of my neighbors than I did before because there's so many more neighbors out and about in this. So, yeah, absolutely, it lifts the spirit. And we've noticed it drops crime. And one of the things that drops crime is that we are planting these forests in a way that they're reconnecting with the cultural lineage of this place, looking to the ethnobotanical history and selectively planting plants that are great, tasty food producers and have been used by the indigenous people of this area, the early settlers from various cultures to this area. So we're tying to that rich history, and we have these food events like mesquite millings where people can grind up the mesquite pods growing from our mesquite trees, and they can eat uh, mesquite pancakes with prickly pear syrup. So people can taste, wow, this actually is really good food, and they can see where we grew it, where we picked it from, and how we watered it. They see the whole system. And then when the kids are out harvesting, like the prickly pear cactus fruit and whatnot, and they're just giggling away, loving this fact that they're part of this abundance, it's really hard to commit a crime when you're around a bunch of giggling kids. You change your whole mentality. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about something that you mentioned on your website, which I think is so true, and that is you are moving your community from an attitude of scarcity to one of abundance. And I think on your website, I read where you connected this idea of scarcity to fear. And I I think that's very true. And so for mental health, which it's really been an issue 
of late. The idea that through our landscape, we can create abundance and reduce our stress and fear and create a more harmonious community. Who wouldn't want that? Right. Well, and the other great thing is we're pretty much making all this happen with what was always here. Yeah. You know, that, the rainwater, the stormwater, it was always here. And much of the seed stock was here, although it was at the periphery. Now it's more at the core. And, you know, I want to encourage everyone, if you're thinking, oh, but you can only do this in Tucson. No, you can do it everywhere. And the, and the easiest plant palette to succeed with is the plants native to your area and your ecosystem. So whereas these strategies that we're using, I find conceptually they work everywhere. The only thing that changes is the plant palette. Yeah. That's got to be specific to your climate, unique to your climate. Right. Well, you've got another website that I will also provide, and it's Neighborhood Foresters, and people can go and see exactly what you're talking about. I had to laugh when I saw that you were using traffic circles to provide a place for native food crops to grow and thrive and also help nourish a community. I mean, who'd have thunk it, right, that you could create so much beauty and abundance in a traffic circle? So kudos to you. (laughs) Well, it it helps to slow traffic even more when people see not only this abundant vegetation in the traffic circle, but people standing in there harvesting from it. Like, what are you doing? So people, they'll stop the car and, and literally ask us. And they get much more intrigued. Right. Well, you know, there's also really good research looking at people who are recovering from illnesses. And if they have a view of green and beautiful landscape, they actually heal faster. So it's just one more notch in that public health service book that you are providing your community. And I I really just can't thank you enough for doing this. And creating an example for all of our listeners. We have a few minutes left, and I want to give those to you because I want you to bring forth anything that I might not have. Well, one thing, a little detail, people oftentimes ask me when they're like, your harvest in the street runoff, isn't there toxin issues coming off the street and whatnot that we should be worried about? And no, it's fine with the perennial plantings. And remember, we're not in an industrial park. We're in a neighborhood. And we, by creating conditions for much more soil life and organic matter and whatnot, we're able to collaborate with the life forms that bioremediate or naturally filter oil dripping from cars and whatnot. We don't plant lettuce greens that we're going to harvest and eat raw from these street-side basins. That we reserve for inside in the garden and the yard that's getting the roof runoff, which is higher quality for those crops. So we're just planting woody perennials and other perennials where we harvest the edible part well above direct contact with the water. And the other thing people might worry, well, with what you're doing, isn't that going to increase mosquitoes? No, it decreases it because we're harvesting water within the soil, not on top of the soil. So we don't have puddles. So sometimes people have an initial reaction of, I don't know. Believe me, we're always evolving and working through the whole system. (laughs) And uh, because... you want it to work great for yourself and everybody else. All right. And it's, it's doing that. Well, 
It's fantastic, and unfortunately, we have to close. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Brad Lancaster. He is a rainwater harvester, permaculturalist, regenerative design consultant, and I would say you also contribute to public health and beauty. Based in Tucson, Arizona, I will provide links to rainwater harvesting as well as neighborhood foresters. So again, thank you, Brad. Thank you. Super appreciate it.